Anybody ever hear of the Pinocchio paradox? I think we have, we have a picture of Pinocchio here. It, uh, it actually has uh, something to do with his nose, right? It's actually a, an adaptation of a pretty famous paradox called the liar's paradox. I don't know if anybody is into, into philosophy or those kinds of things. But I'm going to explain to you the Pinocchio paradox. Are you ready? As my teacher used to say, put your thinking cap on, all right? Because you're going to you're gonna have to stick with me. Pinocchio utters a single statement. He says, this is the statement. My nose grows longer now. Okay, you got that? Pinocchio just said, my nose grows longer now. If he's telling the truth, then his nose should grow longer, just like he said, right? But as we know, Pinocchio's nose only grows if he's telling a lie, which means that if his nose did grow longer, the statement would have had to have been false. But if my nose grows longer now is false, then it should not have grown in the first place. Do you get that? This version of the paradox was created in 2001 by Peter Eldridge Smith's 11-year-old daughter. He's a philosopher. He summarized the paradox this way. Pinocchio's nose will grow if and only if it does not. There you have it. You can take that one home and wrestle with it if you didn't figure it out. We're in a short series regarding the paradox of generosity. It should probably be longer than it is because both paradox and and teachings on generosity are so prevalent in the scriptures. But Christmas is coming, and uh, we're actually, I, I, I encourage you to be here next week. I'm a, we're going to get really practical on how do you live a generous life, but we're also going to tie generosity to Christmas in a way that, I mean, I haven't been able to f- forget since uh, I stumbled upon it. I think it'll make you see the birth of Jesus in a new way. So, so encourage you for that. But next week will be the last of these three talks on this concept. Now, if you're joining us, you need to know this isn't really a, a church series on giving to the church. It's about this concept of generosity. Clearly a Christian concept, if you know the scriptures, but one that, that echoes into creation itself. So, just to back up, a couple things that you missed if you were here last week. Just a few things you need to know before I can go forward. The first is just a refresher course on, on your high school English class in regards to paradox. A paradox is simply a seemingly absurd, absurd or self-contradictory statement or a proposition that, that when you first hear it, it sounds ridiculous, but when you investigate it, or maybe when it's explained to you, it proves out to be well-founded or true. We looked at a lot of paradoxical statements. Many of them are familiar to us. One that I think resonated the most with folks last week was this. The only constant in life is change. It's a paradox, right? But it's true. Now, second thing, here's the second thing about paradoxes. There is incredible power in paradox. Here's why. What a paradox does, a good paradox, is it makes you take what you normally would believe. It makes you take common wisdom or or shared assumptions, right? The things that we build our lives on, our families, our careers. I would argue that we build our faith on are generally assumed principles, you know, uh, the outcomes that given any set or a certain set of, of variables, we assume would, would come, right? What a paradox does, right? When we discover a paradox, it makes us rethink what it is that we assume we know. Very few things do that. A proven paradox, a reliably reimagined relationship between two things should, I mean, it should force us to reevaluate not just how we think about certain things, 
But when these paradoxes are proven, when you go, huh, it isn't the way I would have assumed it worked, it should make us reorient the way we live around this newfound truth. Paradoxes have the power to do that, maybe like nothing else. Now, as I showed you last week, not only is life full of paradoxes, but if you're a follower of Jesus, the Christian faith is actually built on a mountain of paradoxes. So as you can imagine, the scripture is just replete with them. We looked at a lot of them last week, but here's a pretty famous one that Jesus, Jesus spoke. He said, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. It's a paradox, right? It's a pretty important one, especially if you're trying to gain life, if you're trying to, to live the, the life that Jesus seemed to, to want for all of us. Doesn't make any sense. Whoever tries to keep their life is going to lose it. And whoever willingly kind of loses their life, who, who gives it away, finds it? Today is not for unpacking that paradox. It, there is a series that would be related to unpacking that paradox. But imagine if you really believed it, if you really trusted it, if you reoriented your life around that truth. But what I will tell you is that singular paradox ties into one of the most often repeated paradoxes in all of the Judeo-Christian faith. It turns out, in our shared human reality, actually, regardless of our faith, there is a paradox that underpins these things, something that social scientists are now referring to as the generosity paradox. There is something about generosity which doesn't make any sense, but when it's investigated, it turns out actually to be true, and the question is, would you reorient yourself in light of that truth? This week, I watched an economics professor from Purdue then a sociology professor from Harvard and a psychology professor from Stony Brook talk about the, the, the um, importance of what they called their interdisciplinary study on the science of generosity and the power of its paradox that's hidden within it. It's literally, for these social scientists, it is now a proven principle akin to something like gravity. It just exists in creation. It's instilled, it's infused by the creator, we would argue, as, as followers of Jesus, into the creation. Something that academics from various backgrounds and disciplines are bringing to light. It seems like to most in our modern world, breaking news, right? Huh, this makes no sense. But the paradox was actually picked up on thousands of years ago in the scripture. Solomon, renowned as maybe one of the wisest men who ever lived, he, he wrote many of the parables. Here's, or excuse, uh, excuse me, Proverbs. 3,000 years ago, here's what Solomon wrote regarding this concept. One person gives freely, and yet he gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. It's a reframing of, of what Jesus said. It was actually spoken before Jesus said it. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. This is the paradox of generosity. It would seem, now come on, let's just be honest, right? I mean, I know I think this way. Maybe, well, of course, I'm an outlier, but many, maybe some of you are, are like me. I would think if I just started giving away things freely, I would be losing things. If you looked at my balance sheet, my calendar, Time would be going away if you looked at kind of my heart, because I'm giving my heart out to people, that my heart would be, would be kind of getting impacted my, if I'm just giving away financially. Financially, my, my assets would be going down, right? 
It would seem if I volunteered, if I, if I wrote checks, all of those things would have a negative impact on me. Best case scenario, okay, if you want to take a global look, would be that it would be a zero-sum game, right? Okay, I would lose, but to those I'm giving these things away, hopefully proportionally they would gain, and we would kind of have an offset, and so generosity would create societally this kind of zero-sum game. But that is not, over and over again, what the scriptures support. It is not the consistent message of Jesus regarding generosity, nor is it now what science is proving. I gave you several quotes last week from a fascinating book on this topic. It's actually where I got the title from our series from. Um, it's called The Paradox of Generosity. They have a, a byline underneath it. In giving, we receive. In grasping, we lose. It's by Dr. Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson. Here's what they've discovered about the paradox and the general assumption that one might have regarding generosity, that it is at best a zero-sum game. Here's, here's what they wrote. They said it, it's not so. Not at all. The reality of generosity is instead actually paradoxical. Generosity does not work in simple zero-sum win-lose ways. The results of generosity are often instead unexpected, counterintuitive, win-win. Rather than generosity producing net losses, in general, the more generously people give of themselves, the more of many goods they receive in turn. Sometimes they receive more of the same kind of thing that they gave, money, time, attention, and so forth. But more often and importantly, generous people tend to receive back goods that are even more valuable than those they gave. Happiness, health, a sense of purpose in life and personal growth. I love this. Listen to this. It, it, this is, it should stick with you. It's sticking with me. People rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. We need to live into the paradox of generosity. This is their words, not mine. We need to learn to share our resources generously with others, and then in turn, we will likely find ourselves happier, healthier, and more purposeful in life. The data examined here show this to be not simply a nice idea, but a social, scientific fact. It turns out money and happiness are related, just not in the way we thought. We need to live into the paradox of generosity. Now, in order to set the context correct, right, to our modern-day Mendham, New Jersey lives, relative to what's the single largest teaching in the scriptures on the subject of generosity, I want to give you a bit of, of data about the world that we currently live in. And if you're into this kind of stuff, it is fascinating. Honestly, as you read this book, and I've read it, it's almost unbelievable. You can, as you read the book, you can almost hear, and I've watched some interviews, you can almost hear the authors of the book going, yeah, I didn't believe it either. Yeah, I didn't believe it either. You're not going to believe what, what, what this shows. So here's what they discovered. From a biblical perspective, right, there is an oft-repeated saying, sow a seed, reap a harvest, oftentimes repeated in the scriptures. According to the data, what is the harvest of generosity? If I, if, okay, if I buy into it, What's, what's the harvest that comes back? I'm going to reap, what will I sow? Well, here it is. Statistically significant increases in the lives of generous people in these five areas. And they test this every which way from Sunday. Happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. This is the fruit. If you sow generosity, this is what you will receive back. Moms and dads, 
How many times have you said, all I want is for my kid to be happy? So I have to ask you a question. Are you teaching them to be generous? In fact, I'll go further. Is it part of your training? Are you training your children? If you really want them to be happy, I'm sharing with you the wisdom of Jesus Christ. By the way, shared across multiples of faiths and the proven scientific results of generosity. If you want your children to be happy, you should be training them to be generous. I'm always tired. I'm, I'm always sick. If you want to get better, you want to feel better, be generous. I wish I knew God's, you know, as a pastor, I get this one all the time. I wish I knew God's will for my life. Really? All right. Be generous. No, no, I just want you to tell me I don't really want to be generous, right? I'm just so down all the time. I'm full of anxiety and worry and fear. I have the solution. Start giving your stuff away. Seems crazy, right? This is why if you read this, you're like, the authors are like, yeah, we didn't believe it either. Now, I'm not going to go over all of the charts because there's a lot of charts in this book and all of the fruit, but I just want you to see a couple of visuals so you can, can understand where, I, where I'm coming from. I'm going to put a couple up for you to see. When the study talks about generosity, it talks about generosity in various forms, volunteering, um, generosity with your time, then, then generosity in relational forms, things, something they call relational generosity, something else they call neighborly generosity. So they measure generosity in all kinds of forms. But for our purposes, and let's be honest, when we hear the term generosity, we tend to think financial generosity. And of course, they measure, they measure financial generosity also. And so they, they have the same charts well, I'm going to show you a couple charts here, but, but you should, if you don't believe me, go check this out. The charts reflect the same thing for every form of generosity, financial or not. But for cynics like me, right, I went right for financial generosity. And in order to pick a line in the sand for generosity, in order for them to say, okay, what, we have to have a line we're going to draw to, to see, you know, are, are people that are generous in this case, happier, or, or is their health better? They decided, um, in those five areas of life, they were going to, to pick a, a a familiar concept for those of us that have been around the church for a long time, the concept of giving 10% of your income away. Something they called um, a, quote, fairly strong measure of financial generosity. If you've been around the church, right, this is one of the boundaries God created in the Old Testament. It's the concept of tithe. I'm going to give 10% of what I get away. That's the line they drew to to begin to examine the data. And so here's the data. And again, it's you can read the research. It's controlled for every other variable out there. Here's the first chart I want you to look at. This is the chart relative to happiness. Okay? If you give away 10% of your income, what impact will it have on your happiness? Nearly 4 out of 10 Americans who say they give away 10% of their income report that they're very happy. Only 10% of them are somewhat or very unhappy. Compared to those who don't give away 10% of their income, the percentage of those less generous givers who are very happy drops by 10% to 28%. And the number of those who report being somewhat or very unhappy, again, it increases by a half. And so here's their conclusion, quote, what should we make of these differences? They're not enormous, but they are sizable, and they are statistically significant. Even after controlling for the possible effects of other variables that we have to reason to believe might matter here, at the very least, we can conclude the practice of giving away 10% of one's income is associated with the greater possibility of being happy in life. 
Stated in the reverse, Americans who do not give away 10% of their income run the significant risk of ending up less happy than they could have actually been. In fact, as a group, they're less happy. And so whatever Americans lose monetarily by giving away 10% of their income is offset by the greater likelihood of being happier in life. And we have good reason to think that increased happiness is more valuable than the last dollar given away. Do you believe this? It's not just happiness. Here's the chart for physical health. 57% of those who gave that much away say they're in excellent or very good health compared to 39 who don't. Conversely, more Americans who don't give away 10% of their income report being in poor or fair health than those who do, 23% compared to 18. They, what? Oh, we got the wrong chart. The other one was wrong too. All right, let's go back. Let's flip through. There's five of them. So uh, right there is good health, okay. So there's your health one, right? Excellent or good health if you give away 10% of your income. 47 to 18, and you see the constriction over on the other side. Didn't give away 10%. This is health-wise. Do you have the one on um, happiness? There it is. Look at that. Again, secular study. This is not, you know, how to get your church to tithe 101. It has nothing to do with that. This is, this is just social science. All right, so that's the chart. I'll give you the last one. Um, life purpose. Same idea, Right? Um, you'd see the same thing. If I, put, if I put up the chart for depression, you would see the same thing. If I put up the chart for personal growth, you would see the same chart. And it's the same way for generosity in every one of its forms, financial or non-financial. The pattern always holds. It's verifiably true. Being generous in every form produces great fruit in your life. That's paradox number one. Does it seem to make sense? Right? Like if anybody said to you, hey, you realize if you were financially generous, there's a good chance your health would change. What? It's true. All right. Here's paradox number two when it, when it comes to generosity. The current state of Americans and our giving. If all of those charts are true and reliable, one would assume, right, that, that we would respond to that truth. We'd go, oh, wow, I have found the key to unlocking happiness. Isn't that all we ever want? We just want to be happy. I found the key. Interesting. Because according to data collected by the Science of Generosity Survey, 2.7% of adult Americans give away 10% or more of their income. Viewed this way, the majority of Americans... 97.3% of Americans are forfeiting the chance to enhance their well-being just by being generous with their money. Nine, over 97% of us just give away happiness. Interestingly enough, for those of us that are church people, right, study by long-term church-giving researchers suggests that while a much higher percentage of American churchgoers claim to tithe... Only 2.6 of them actually gave 10% of their income, a nearly identical number. Interestingly enough, remember what Jesus said? Here, here's a good, just, I'm telling you, once you start reading this book, you really, it's so fascinating. It's just, it's just such a reflective look at your own heart. How about this one? Remember last week we talked about Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against greed. We talked about it. Greed hides. It's unlike any other form of sin, Right? When those same Americans, which only 2.7% of them give 10% of their income away, that's the actual fi uh, figure. When, when asked if they gave 10% of their income away, 20% of Americans said yes. 
10 times as many that actually did, said they did. Greed hides. Takeaway, over 86% of Americans give away less than 2% of their income. Welcome to the paradox, right? Welcome to the paradox. That, that doesn't make sense, at least scientifically. Why would we do that? I'll give you an, another paradox. Look at this chart. So, so many of us are like, well, I'll do better in the future. It's just right now I'm not making enough. If I get a raise then, if, if, you know, I just need a little bit more to cover my expenses. And then whenever I get a little bit more, then I'll be generous. But the statistics show it's completely the opposite. People that make less than $12,500 give away 2.2% of their income. People that make over $90,000 give away 1.1%. Giving actually goes down the more money you make. It's another paradox. Doesn't seem to make any sense. Last week, we began looking at the longest single teaching in the scriptures on this concept of the paradox of generosity. This newly proved scientific truth was known long ago, <laughs> declared by, by Solomon the Proverbs, and picked up by Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes most of the New Testament. And he's writing to a church in the city of Corinth. And this church in the city of Corinth is actually not unlike our church. It was, it was a church which sat in a city that was part of the metro, uh, metropolis of, of trade and influence and wealth. They were, relative, relatively speaking, they were the well-off church. And he's trying to persuade this, this church of well-off Gentiles that they should be generous in offering for a church in Judea full of Jewish believers that was suffering under a famine. If you were here, you, you might remember how he started. Last week we talked about this. He told them of a, another church. It was a, a very poor church. Not just poor, it was an oppressed church in Macedonia. And he goes, I want you to know about this church. They were giving generously out of their poverty. He said of their, their rich generosity, quote, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And he says to the Corinthians, he, he encourages them that, to act in the same way. Going as far as saying, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm not commanding you. I didn't tell the Macedonians they had to do it. The Macedonians were waiting in line to do it. Generosity. This is the truth of the scripture. And it, it can be frustrating for us. Generosity, according to Paul, can't be commanded or demanded. It is purely a matter of your heart. It, it is the result of of heart change and transformation. Generosity is to be freely and joyfully given. Which, side note, if you look into this study, the study on generosity today says the same thing. The only way to mess up the generosity paradox is to use it for your own gain. To make it some kind of investment strategy for you or some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. Generosity is a hard issue. If it comes out of the heart, the paradox is in play. Generosity for Paul then, and for now us, it starts with a right heart. Now, if you remember last week, Paul then tries to connect money, right, back to manna. Some of you know, it, it, that was the food that God provided the ancient Israelites as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Here's what he said regarding this concept. Super important concept for us. He goes, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. You see, I'm adding you see, but at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. 
As it's written, and here comes the reference back to an Old Testament story, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, can we just be honest, okay? As good red-blooded Americans, when you read that, the goal is equality, what do you do? Oh, I don't know about that. I don't think I like that. I mean, it sounds like socialism, right? Is Paul saying, uh, you know, is that what Paul's getting at? No. He's referencing a historical truth. He's reminding his people that God had provided manna for them. Now, they had to still get up every morning and go out. The manna didn't jump into their bowls. They still had to go out every morning and bring in the manna. And every morning, some people had more advantages than others did. They were younger or they were stronger. Every morning, some people woke up with with disadvantages from others. They were aged or disabled. And so, yes, some did more. Some had more. But God was the giver of all of it to everyone. And so, based on what you had... Right? You were to share it with those who had less, so that everyone at the end of every day had their share. As you know, if you know that story, God, because, you know, we're just not good at this. God built it into the system. If you tried to, to hoard the manna, right, to store it up so you didn't have to work tomorrow, maybe so, so you could have some more than others, it, it would simply rot. And everybody would smell it as you went by your house. And people would look at your house and go, Oh, conversely, in the world we live in today, right, when we hoard it up and we store it up, people go by our house and go, oh, interesting. So what Paul is saying to the church, right, he's saying to the rich in Corinth, he goes, look, you have been blessed. Your money is like the manna then. It's a result of what God provided for you. Don't store it up. Bless others with it. Or metaphorically, here's the warning, like manna, it will rot. You. Your soul, be on the watch out. Look out. Be careful. That's the context. This is the setup for for maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible on the paradox of generosity. It gets misquoted and taught all the time. Here's what Paul said. He goes, remember this, because it's easy to forget. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Remember, whoever sows sparingly will, will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. I saw a pretty interesting visual on this this week, and it stuck with me, so I'm going to give it to you, and maybe it'll stick with you. This is a uh, 16-ounce bottle of water, right? It's got a cap on it. So whatever is in here is in here, and, and if you were to take this and bury this in the ground, you could come back in a million years, Right? And this will still have 16 ounces of water in it because it's got a cap, right? It's a container, in a sense. What Paul is talking about, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will reap generously, is a very different concept. The scripture, when it talks about generosity, is essentially saying you have been poured into and blessed. And so with that, you are to spread, you are to sow that generosity in other areas, And as you sow that generosity into all other areas, what's going to happen? You're going to see, Paul speaks of generosity like it's a cup, like like it's a container. You see, a cup is created with a very different purpose. A cup is created not to be capped, but to pour out, to be filled up and to be poured out. 
And so when done over time, well, right, as I'm filled up with blessing, I am continuing to pour out that blessing. I, I actually had a couple glasses for my house here I was going to bring in. But, but the concept is this glass, if it were a glass in my house, this glass, will, will, I will drink out of this cup for years. My family will drink out of it for years. My grandchildren will drink out of the same cup. It was created to pour out. That's, that's what's in its design, to be filled up and to be poured out. This is a container. This, this is a conduit. So the question when it comes to generosity is, what are you? Give you a couple other just visuals to add to it, by the way. This actually is not so much a pitcher as it is a hose. There is no end to the amount of resources that could be poured in to the container. It could go on and on and on and on. Read about what Jesus said about being the water, um, the water of life. There is no end to it. I'll give you one correction on, on this. Here's the story with, with when we treat blessing like a container. The truth is, if you come back in a million years and we're the container, what's going to happen when you die is this will be poured out to someone else. And all that's going to be left in the ground is the container. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You're capped. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. The flow begins. And so he goes on, he reminds them, this is not an investment strategy, though. This is not the prosperity gospel where I put a little in, I sow a little seed, hoping that I'm going to get a lot back. It's a heart issue. He says to them, look, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion. Remember he said earlier, I'm not commanding you, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I told you last week we're building towards a, genero- a definition of generosity. All right, well, what does it mean to be generous, right? Here's some more clues. If you're, if you're taking notes on it, right, decided in your heart. So far, we've seen that it, you know, it, it comes freely, that people are almost pleading to do it. It's in direct relation to how much has been given to us, right? It, it's not a dollar issue. But here's that concept, decided in your heart. So first, it's a, it's a heart issue, but also there's a premeditated decision. It's not an emotional one. I wasn't sitting around at night, and, you know, that dog commercial comes on where you see them in the cage, and, you know, that, that song plays, and it's like, oh, I sent them 10 bucks. I'm so generous. That's an act of generosity. That's not being generous. To be generous, right, there is planning and decision in generosity. It's not, it's not related to an emotional appeal. And here you have the preeminent teaching, by the way, on the concept of tithing in the New Testament. It is no longer a command like the Old Testament tithe. Under the New, under the new Covenant, right, it is a heart issue. You should give what you have decided to give. You should think about it, you should calculate it, and you decide what you should give. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because they get it. Which is why I would tell you that when Paul wrote to, to this, in no way did, do I think that Paul said, hey, I think in the American church we do this, Paul, but that Paul is worried that they're going to go, this is awesome, the command to, th- to tithe has gone away. This is fantastic. Now, you know, God loves a, a cheerful giver. Here's a nickel. 
I'm happy. I don't think that's what he was worried about. What he's doing with the tithe here is exactly what Jesus did with murder in the Sermon on the Mount. He's upping the ante. Remember, right? Everybody's going to go to heaven. You ask him, why aren't you going to heaven? I'm a good person. How do you know a good person? I haven't killed anybody. Right? Jesus goes, uh, you've heard it said it, to, to people long ago, you shouldn't murder. Anybody who murders is subject to judgment. I'm telling you, anybody who's angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus all of a sudden makes murder a heart issue. Paul says the same thing about generosity. He doesn't lower the bar. He ups the ante. And, and then Paul gives them one last fruit. One last vision for the power of the generosity of paradox. What could be accomplished if you believed it? It's in seeing the harvest, right, that we understand how stupid it is to hold on to the seed, how short-sighted it is. The science tells us of the five fruits that we looked at, happiness, health. Jesus over and over again tells us to store up for ourselves, right, through our generosity, treasures in heaven in the kingdom to come. So here, reap there. You are very tangibly building up for yourselves blessing in the eternal kingdom to come in proportion to your generosity. Jesus repeated that story. But then Paul comes and he tells the Corinthians, there's one last thing he goes, I, I want my people to see that, that if they understood what sowing the seeds of generosity would accomplish, if they could see what would, the fruit that would be sown, maybe it would be compelling enough that they would let go of the seed. And if the condition, I'll just, I'll just preface this saying, if the condition of the world right now makes you shake your head and wonder about the goodness of God, check this out. Here's, here's what he says. He goes, and God is able to bless you abundantly. The water will just keep pouring. How is he able to bless you abundantly? Because you just keep pouring it out, right? So you always, you're always an unfilled vessel just waiting, waiting for, for it to come in. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, do you sense how much there is? You will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. As it is written. He's quoting, again, last time we went back to Proverbs, now he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 112. And he uses the fruit of generosity. Uh, what the fruit of the, their generosity is this word righteousness. In sowing seeds of generosity, Paul goes, I need you to see something. If you would be a generous people, you will reap not just health, not, not just bodily health, not just lack of depression, not, not just gifts in the kingdom to come. But there's something else that's even just as important, if not more important. He says you will reap righteousness forever. Now, I want to give you the context for where he's getting that from. Here's Psalm 112. Good will come to those who are generous, that's why he's quoting from this, and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken, they'll be remembered forever. Don't we all want to be remembered forever? They'll have no fear of bad news. Hmm, there's kind of that depression stuff again. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure, they will have no fear, and in the end they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness, there it is again, endures forever. What he's trying to point out is that generosity is the seed that reaps righteousness. So generously reap righteousness. And, and that word doesn't mean what you and I tend to think it means. In the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, although it's true in the New Testament too, it's not so much moral goodness, right, as it is justice, which is what he just said. But it's not justice in like the bad guys will get what they're due. 
What the psalmist is saying, what Paul is referencing is, is that, gener- that generosity, generous people, because they scatter their blessing and not hoarding it, right? Because they do that, here's what righteousness means in the Bible, people are being brought back into right relationship, into equality again. Equality is being reestablished. Poverty is being healed. Conflict is being healed. Relationships are being rehealed. Everything is going back to the way it was meant to be. Everyone has enough. If what's happening in the Middle East now is causing you to shake your head, and I saw a video yesterday that I can't, I don't know if I can ever get it out of my mind. The abject horror, the suffering. I mean, there's, I don't know if you're like me. Like, I watch it, and I'm like, this is going on. I could, like, fly there in, in hours. I could be there. And I'm in the same world. And, like, today my greatest worry is if the cowboys are going to let up against the giants, right? If that bothers you, if you've, ever, if you've ever wondered, right, about the iniquity of it, I know some of you have wondered if this has anything to do with the return of Jesus. Is this a precursor to an end time event? It's interesting, Peter, Jesus' disciple Peter, he, he correlated those things, this concept of the return of Jesus and the fruit of generosity, which is righteousness, right relationships being restored. And so he's telling people about Jesus coming as the great thief in the night. He's warning them that Christ is going to return. And here's what he says, so, so here's what you should do. He goes, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You could speed the coming of Jesus' return through generosity, it turns out. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. What does he mean? Where everybody's obeying the law? No. Where everything is put right. No pain, no war, no suffering, no death. He's saying everything is going to be the way God created it to be. Relationships between man and God will be restored. Relationships between man and creation, the environment, will be restored. Relationships between man and man, between the rich and the poor and the black and the white and the races and the culture, it'll all be made right. Friends, don't you see what Paul is saying, what Peter is writing and urging? Especially, I mean, especially if you believe the end is near. And look, I'm a man in around my 50s. The end is near. Then scatter your seed. And when you do, you heal the world. You heal the world. You make practical Jesus' prayer. Righteousness on earth as it is in heaven. The world would be so much different if there were more conduits than containers, especially, especially if those who followed Jesus, who claimed to follow Jesus, moved from container to conduit. And so I'll close today with this, and we'll pick it up next week. The first step on the path toward generosity, if you want to be generous, you've got to see the fruit or you'll never let go of the seed. Jesus encourages you to see the fruit of generosity all the time. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, he said, where rust cannot destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Paul picks it up and he says, don't you see the fruit when he tells you that your generosity is God's plan for healing the world? Peter urges them, he goes, look, in, the, in light of the return of Jesus, who's one day, can you just remember, in light of these teachings, one day Jesus will return. And there's a whole story in here, some of you know it, about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, and what's going to separate, separate the sheep and the goats? It'll be based on the fruit of their generosity. 
When did we see you hungry? It's the people that, it is the, the shame of this story, it is the people that recognize Jesus that will say, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, or take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? All of them, Jesus, Paul, the entirety of the, the biblical arc, they all appeal to the fruit of the paradox of generosity. The scientists confirm it's true if you want to be happy and healthy, if you're looking for purpose and joy and transformation in your life. All of these are the fruit of generosity. It is so powerful. It is life-changing. It is world-transforming. And each of us, you have the power today to choose to be a container or a conduit to change your life, to change our world. Why don't we do it? Like, what, seriously, what, what more? What more, especially for followers of Jesus, would you want than this? Why don't we do it? I'll pick that up next week. And we'll look at how to be generous, what the practicalities of it are. But today I'm, I'm going to close with that definition I promised you. Here it is. Generosity, based on everything we've learned so far, and I hope you'll see, you'll see all of this. It is the eager and joyful, purposeful, premeditated, calculated, and dedicated giving away of God's resources in sacrificial proportion to what one has been entrusted with. Isn't that inspiring? Probably not. I'm not sure how inspiring those words are, but I do know this. There is a truth and a power that could change everything for everyone. The only question is, will you live? Will you choose to not just believe in, will you choose to live into the power of the paradox of generosity? Let's stand and close.